Well, welcome to Good Money, everybody. We are happy to have you here today. We are more happy to have Roger and Skyler with us. Roger and Skyler uh, run a uh, an elite tax consulting firm, so you help people dodge and duck the swings and punches of the federal government. Yeah, something like that. Are we allowed to say that publicly? All within the law, right? Okay, yeah, <laughs> all within the law. All, right. all for the spirit of the law, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we try to get Roger and Hammerstein, but they're dead. So we got these guys. Yeah. <laughs> Next best thing. That's right. <laughs> I'm glad you know that. Uh, well, there's quite a number of things that we want to chat with you about today. But we have talked about getting punched in the face, uh, been accused of financial irresponsibility mm. for telling people to do things like not have retirement accounts. And so while this is going to be a tangent to the better conversation that we're going to have today, yeah. um, do you, do you want to punch me publicly as well? <laughs> <laughs> do you have a Do you have a retirement account? I do not. Whoa! And yet you're an accountant. Explain I'm a, yourself. I'm a CPA. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I very much, um, you know, am in favor of being financially responsible. I mean, this is obviously, you know, uh, a virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, it has nothing to do with the idea that, you know, you shouldn't really think about the future or anything like that. Mm-hmm, uh, it has everything to do with the fact that um, I think a lot of the critiques that you guys make about the nature of 401ks, for instance, are, are largely co- correct. Um, and I think that there are better ways that you can actually plan for the future um, that are more consistent with a, mm. a comprehensively Catholic um, uh, system of thought. Um, about the economy and that are actually potentially more profitable given a lot of the uncertainty that we see going forward. Um, That's marvelous because we get comments every now and then to the effect of your grandmother, when you're a grandparent, you're going to regret this because you'll be starving in your basement, uh, you know, and that's, you know. Not nice to hear. It's not nice to hear. (laughs) So it's awful nice to hear the idea. But then our response always immediately is this gut reaction of like, well, we didn't have 401ks and these sorts of market investment strategies for at least 20, 30, 6,000 years. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so obviously we must have done something unless we all did end up dying in our parents' or our children's basement at retirement age. So. In many ways, you know, Americans used to be a very uh, entrepreneurial people. You know, you had a lot of small and mid-sized businesses, a lot of small firms out there. And, you know, this is something that's really gone away. Mm. Um, People have become dependent upon their corporate jobs. And so really what it does is it kind of cuts the legs off of any real entrepreneurial frontier kind of spirit. Um, It also cuts the legs off of the... Uh, concomitant communal spirit that Americans used to have in many ways. And so it's really an opportunity to use uh, some of the money that you would have otherwise be putting into a 401k, which people oftentimes, you know, are they're maxing that out, you know, they're putting the, you know, close to $20,000 a year uh, into their 401k. And, uh, you know, you can't do other cool things with that. Mm. So. Yeah. Roger, you've done cool things in your life. I hope, I hope so. <laughs> Glad you think so. What are, what are the top three cool things that you've done? The top three cool things. <laughs> well, um, going to, uh, to France this summer to meet with other uh, Catholic countercultural groups was pretty special. Um, getting to go to Mont Saint Michel 
Mm. Uh, <clears throat> getting to live in a medieval village briefly with people who also live there in a 14th uh, century well, castle. slow down, slow down there, partner. <laughs> well, this, is all, this is just the first one. You lived in a castle? For all of two days, yeah. Wow. Were you the castle accountant or something? No, no, not at all. Just the, just the guest peasant. Oh, good, yeah. <laughs> that's sort of how I see myself as a guest peasant. That's wonderful. <laughs> what, what did you learn from living in a medieval castle? Uh... Well, the plumbing can be dodgy. <laughs> As a matter of fact, they had a 14th century uh, plumbing situation mm -hmm. on the castle wall, which is mm -hmm. crumbling. Thankfully, mm -hmm. they don't have to use that that often. Um, but I, Just it, in desperate need. It, it, I suppose so. But the other thing I learned is that uh, <clears throat> it, it's very different to exist in a place that was built according to a Catholic social vision. Sure. And this castle was attached to a village that once the outer wall encircled the village and the relationship between the guy in the castle and the village uh, constitutes temporal social order. And right. the, um, actually, the, the family that lives there have, have a special devotion to a local saint who was, I, I believe, the first layman to be canonized in France, who wow. was a, wow. a local lord um, who really wanted to be uh, a monk, but uh, the church insisted that you, know, you, you are a, a local lord and that temporal role is important enough that you should probably just do that. Oh, wow, awesome. Uh, and he uh, did that and be, became a saint. was an extremely uh, conscientious Catholic lord. Phenomenal. And before Vatican II, imagine what that. <laughs> How did he know about the call of the laity? <laughs> Very prescient. And so now in this part of France, is Bourbonnais, just yeah. the, the, right in the center of the country, the origin of the French royal family, as a matter of fact, with a, their headquarters is 15 minutes from where we were staying, is dotted with these castles that are now Beautiful. fallen into ruin. And our host pointed out that you know, now these castles are owned by aristocracy that are absentee. They don't care about right. the property. They don't care about us. And uh, what we have to do is restore a real Catholic social vision to restore this countryside that's falling yeah. into ruin and is depopulating all the rest. Wow, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was pretty special. That's that's extremely special. Right. Especially as an American. Oh, absolutely. See that. Yeah. And I can see, of course, the connection between the two things you've just said, which is namely one of the things that prevents us from restoring the Catholic social order and really Im imagining the social order is simply the fact that every tying your money up with BlackRock, basically. Yeah, every bit of excess we has have it goes to the atheist order. I yeah. mean, not to be mean about it, but sort of how it goes. And then we don't have anything left over to, for instance, rebuild the wall. Right. As a matter of, of fact, Jerusalem, that is not right, that right. sounded kind of Trumpian. Yeah. <laughs> As it happens, a lot of aristocrats now are in finance. Of course instead they are. Of caring for their ancestral estates. Oh right. man, we should. Ha I should be Andrew Jones instead, which is you know that they're not aristocrats at all anymore because mm -hmm. what made an aristocracy within Christendom is the you know noblesse oblige, right? <laughs> which of course finance financiers have zero. Right. Yeah. Poor guys. Um, well, I mean, this is a major conversation that we've been having over the course of the last couple of days is that what does it actually take to create a new polity? You know, and this is also a question that Mark and I have been asked a million times too is, um, all right, so you have all of these kind of radical visions for what Christianity should be like. Uh, there's a lot of kind of like personal uh, growth that we all need to do, virtue that we need to, uh, you know, by the Holy Spirit begin to be habituated into. Um, but what's kind of the lodestar? Like, where is it that we're actually going? 
And, um, you know, we won't reach it in our lifetime. Probably we need to have a 500-year vision here. Um, we do. But what what is that vision that so we can start walking in the right path? Um, and you guys have thought a lot about this, and you've seen, you know, it's going to look probably different in different countries and stuff, but can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on in France and what you saw there and how are they stumbling about trying to make this happen? Right, so the, these youth movements are trying to think about, well, where can we reconstitute something that approximates a traditional Catholic social order away from the reach of the capitalist system on the one hand, the other, the French Republic, which mm. is you know, extremely uh, uh, kind of a micromanagerial state structure, you know, worse even than we have here. So their thought is, well, we can return to these marginal rural areas that are depopulating rapidly uh, and quietly live together in a way that, uh, again, approximates these traditional ways of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, what impressed me, I mean, they're not the first to kind of think in these terms. What's imp- what impresses me about them is their sensitivity to the fact, and this goes back to, I think, where we started, that you have to, you have to be attentive to how this works economically, right? Mm-hmm. It, it has to function or it's not going to function. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's where our interests you know, with our business you know, we're, we're pursuing in the long term a Catholic social vision with that intersects with some of these these more uh, rarefied concerns is the function marrying the functionality to the vision sure so. yeah absolutely and you know I think just to my previous points about um, how one should think about what you use your excess capital for um, you really need to be intentional about the economic relationships between people if you want to think about restoring a Catholic social vision. Totally. There's no getting around what you do with your money and your time and with your relationships between you know between people, between businesses, between households. Um, well, it's the it, most difficult part of living in the church is you have to be thoughtful. That's right. About everything. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So. In our mind, really, the first step towards a restoration of a, of a Catholic social vision is to uh, take your, your time and your talent and your treasure out of a system that, that really hates you and increasingly move it to uh, a system that could be the foundation of a new uh, social order. Um, and that starts you know, with our personal decisions, it starts with our households, it starts with what we do with our, our businesses. Um, and then um, the next step really is to start establishing um, a sort of parallel economy and a parallel polis alongside what currently exists Mm -hmm. as much as we can um, so that we can start the process of uh, really creating that, that, that new Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. So can you give me maybe three practical suggestions for that removal from the economy of hatred into the economy of love that people can enact? Sure. Well, not so much to, to conclude the thought, but yeah. to give it some some uh, skin that I can. I mean, the fir- the fir- grab, look well, at well, well, yeah, what do you have skin? That's gross. Uh, the, fir- the first thing is what we just what we started with in our conversation yes, right, is to course. opt out of um, the assumption that you need to participate in the regime of you know the typical retirement account structure, four hundred one k. And would you extend that to stock investment generally, or are you thinking I would. in terms of? Okay. I would. I would. I would say if you're if you're in publicly traded markets as your primary form of investment, that's just really not going to leave room for other things to do with your money. And uh, as Jacob informs me every now and then, it's actually not that successful. 
Yeah, and increasingly, increasingly fragile and you know uncertain as, as to opposed how it's to like go. commodities are, are real. Yeah, yeah, uh, property yeah. and such. Number two is is to is to think entrepreneurially. You know, like many of our forebears did about what you can do um, with. Uh, not only uh, what you do in terms of conventional businesses, but also with the home economy. Mm. You know, um, so many people have, in our spheres, have large households, they have a lot of children, um, but they're not thinking creatively about what what to do um, in the in the home in terms of um, productive activity. Um, totally. They're they're sending their kids off to school or sports programs or various other things, and so it just really doesn't cultivate that. Um, that spirit of entrepreneurship within the home, and then furthermore, um, just cuts the legs off of a kind of sustained culture of productivity uh, in the household. And so, um, again, divesting yourself, I guess, first from a lot of this kind of global uh, economic system, you know, through publicly traded securities. Number two, restoring that spirit of entrepreneurship. Um, and then I'll break out that third as the household economy, the sure. productive household yeah. economy. Yeah, Jacob and I were just we were just reading about uh, some of the um, what do, primitive accumulation <laughs> in our in our last episode. But basically, the household economy that you're talking about restoring is, of course, the thing that was destroyed in order to bring in a regime of wage labor in the beginning. That's right. And so it seems to me like maybe it's a no-brainer to yeah. say, well, we can't can't simply have any traditional form of life without restoring the um, that which was taken in order to have a extremely untraditional way of life. Yeah. And I think people need to understand that the 1950s, right. which is oftentimes idealized as a kind of idyllic period for, yeah. you know, perhaps those more traditionally minded out there uh, within our circles is, is really not ideal at all. And there's a reason why um, many women who are in the situation of being at home while their children were in public school and kind of twiddling their thumbs were dissatisfied deeply with that. Um, Could you go into that? Because I think that is a really important point is that conservatives will like to say, or kind of even pro-capitalists would like to say something like, you know, it did work. It worked. And I always say, when did it work? And they said from 1950 to kind of the mid-70s, it, it worked. Yeah. You know, and... And what is, so I have a response to that, what's, what's, but I'm more interested in yours. My response is that, you know, part of the reason why that is purported to have worked is because the U.S. was the global hegemon after World War II. And so in many ways, we controlled mm -hmm. the global markets. We were, were very dominant on the world stage. Um, and not only that, but we were, um, uh, we were at a period of, of great prosperity in terms of the ability for us to extract resources, you know, um, fossil fuels, et cetera. Um, and ultimately, though, uh, what that what that led to was a unsustainable situation where you had a uh, single earner, you know, father who's in a oftentimes unionized sort of mm. um, manufacturing type job, yep. you know, uh, and then a mother at home who, you know, they increasingly had fewer and fewer children because they weren't needed as far as part of a productive household. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it left, in some ways, both parties deeply dissatisfied because they're not working on a common project mm -hmm. of household, the household economy. Totally. Um, and I think that, that a lot of the feminist critiques from that period um, just were a result of the fact that if you're, if you're a mother at home and maybe you have two or three children and you send them off to public school, what's your, what's your sense of overarching purpose, you know? 
Yeah, where's um, your authority? Right. So I think from an economic perspective, you could say that that, that was a period of great prosperity mm-hmm. and uh, great creation of, of wealth and jobs and many things that, you know, um, a lot of that generation benefited from in terms of, you know, their their cash, yeah. uh, their money <laughs> that they received um, and increasing property values, etc. However, it was a totally unsustainable social order um, because it ignored the productive household as the basis of society. Mm-hmm. I'd furthermore point out that that post-war period benefited or could draw on accrued social capital from really past, you know, many centuries, right? Um, so, for example, like if you look at America around World War II, there's still like, for Catholics, ethnic neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that sense of belonging to the church and the parish and to the culture was all drawn from the old world and those, those long associations from the past. And then after World War II, these neighborhoods break up. People move to the suburbs on Long Island instead of being in, uh, in the inner city. And that culture and sense of shared belonging is just lost. Mm. Uh, yeah, and give sense. that a couple more generations, and suddenly the, this, these stores of cultural capital are depleted in addition to the economic shifts that we see later in yeah, the 20th century. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see how these are, are tied together because the kind of world that you're describing is a world that is entirely dependent on commodity production and commodity consumption. It's like, how do we live? Not by making or producing, but we live by buying. And yeah, we had a great time for buying. We had money <laughs> and we had factories, and they were working together well. Um, but you can see already how that commodity basis of culture uh, destroys the neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're if you're now looking for um, your butcher or your baker or the people that make up, you know, we talk about an ethnic neighborhood or a town, but it's an it's an economy, right? Yeah. The people that make up that economy are producing things and then trading and buying and selling, and where commodity production reigns, then inevitably you're looking for cheaper commodities, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, the butcher's being replaced, the, gro- the grocer's being replaced. And so that means that the families that make up those neighborhoods are ultimately unnecessary economically, even if you want them culturally, you know. And it's just unsustainable. Um, totally, yeah. I mean, uh, we're seeing the that proof with, is... Yeah, we're seeing that with the, the cracks in the system that have occurred over the last several years, issues with supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk to very savvy business people who still are not quite on the same page as us about, you know, for instance, publicly traded securities, etc. And everybody's interested in having the com- conversation about local sourcing and sustainability. Totally. And mm-hmm. so it's not as if this is a concept that is that is totally outside of the realm of uh, normal economic analyses and business conversations. Uh, yeah. It's not just a rarefied political philosophy no, you're totally group right. that we're t- Wal- you know, Walmart, around this table. Walmart just recently put in like $300 million or something into localizing supply chains after COVID. Mm-hmm. Walmart. Yeah. You know. And you get a snapshot of your shelves kind of looking like the grocery stores of North Korea. Yeah, you think maybe something has to change. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> At the same time, I, we are, you know, we tend to be skeptical of going to the opposite extreme, which many people in reacting to this kind of mm. thing do. And that's, you know, the, the kind of homestead model or self-sufficiency. Um, we, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for that. That's good. But it doesn't actually reconstitute common life mm. by definition because it's oh, so yeah. concerned with... Self-sufficiency, which is a dirty word in any other context, right, for us Catholics. Oh, yeah. Um, and so you do, you know, when we think about, you know, how do we decouple from the, you know, global supply chains or global economic system, we still need to be thinking in terms of, well, how do we 
you know, act economically and productively with each other mm-hmm. and not just in our productive household or our homestead. You know, that is the, pi- the place to start, but it's not the place to end. Absolutely. I mean, the, the political philosophy and reality of liberal capitalism idealizes an individual over and against a state and a state over and against an individual. And by state, I also mean the corporate structure of commodity production. And so the idea that you're going to resist the corporate structure of commodity production and state interference by kind of sinking into the individual, I mean, you're simply taking the game as it's uh, as the rules are being set for you. I mean, the missing link, it seems to me, is the community. Um, that is the thing that is becomes invisible within liberal capitalism. And so its restoration, like you're talking about in France, but I think anywhere that it occurs, is where a genuinely novel social order creates the kind of community sustainability that really doesn't need a lot of the structures that um, globalism has to offer. And uh, it shouldn't surprise us, because it seems to be, from our research, that that's pretty much how the early church... Uh, did it right mm-hmm. what you didn't see was uh, a bunch of homesteaders no, i mean it like you didn't see a bunch of people being like the roman empire is corrupt let's uh become self-sufficient like family like nuclear family units it didn't it's not even in there like how, how would you find that in like a system or something I, I i oftentimes find myself mildly chastising um families that are friends uh, who, who read The Little House on the Prairie to their children as part of the homeschool <laughs> curriculum, because uh, that's exactly what we don't want to do. Um, okay. It's so funny how that's that's really seeped into the American consciousness as the model for kind of uh, family life, you know, uh, rugged, you know, uh, American frontier family life where they, you know, Pa played the fiddle uh, around the fire and, you know, we, we basically uh, had this nice little house on the prairie. And it's it's really not the model that we want to look to at all uh, in our history, um, and uh, it, it it's better than pure individualism because obviously they have a very robust family life. Yeah. Um, but the robust family life and the robust productive household alone is really not enough. Right? Oh, and I don't think it's an academic point to say that well the mid nineteenth century was a modern period, right? So yeah. I think it's it's easy to see the uh, you know the the prairie dresses and the chickens and think well this is the this this is a good old days, but as a matter of fact it just wasn't. I mean these are you know, the settlement patterns in the United States in the 19th century followed the logic of individualism and capitalism. Oh, um, absolutely. I mean this is the whole it's 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 tough cuz you you end up not having a lot of heroes um, at least within the thought of this country. Um, but people like Michael Hanby, D.C. Schindler, D.L. Schindler have written about what they call the um, technological ontology of America, which is <laughs> a fancy way of saying that from the beginning, um, America, through Protestantism um, and through its break with really tradition, um, was always set up to uh, inaugurate the kind of individualistic tendencies that we see today. However, and I know that you guys would say this too, I mean, People don't actually ever entirely conform to the ideological systems that, you know, and and part of what makes Little House on the Prairie and the rugged individual so um, marvelous and interesting and worth preserving is precisely because they very rarely actually live out the ideology with consistency. It's like the kind of communal life, the communal music, the folk culture, the... the, it simply isn't the case that they were actually always becoming 
successfully becoming the kind of individual self-sufficient people. Um, Roger has made kind of a study of, of early New England. And um, I think, you know, just to your point about the settlement patterns, Roger, and how they changed yeah. from the initial settlement period to uh, the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century. Maybe you can speak to that and kind of what the township model was and how it did in many ways conform to the, the model of the, the medieval Christian, you know, Catholic Commonwealth. Right. Yeah, please. So, so we've, uh, you know, my, my wife and I have been, and some friends have been sort of playing at, you know, intentional community for a bit. And we have a 501c3 called Winthrop House, um, which is weird because we're all Catholic. And we're, we're referencing, a, you know, a very hardcore Puritan. But in addition to being my wife's direct ancestor, he is in many no ways way. the direct ancestor of, of America. Uh, the city on the hill, his sermon on mm -hmm. the ship, the Arbella coming over from England is still referenced as, as uh, you know, the core ideal of what America is supposed to be. This, this, reek, this uh, city on the hill is an example of everybody else. But if you look at what he was saying and his, his co-workers were trying to do, is they were on an errand in the wilderness, as they put it, to basically reconstitute a model of what Christendom should be. And these early New England settlements on the coast of Massachusetts were very communal. The old New England town from the 17th century was centered not on individual homesteads, but on the church, hmm. uh, on the, the commonwealth, that is a temporal reflection of the church in the magistrate. Uh, and then in terms of their economic life, uh, shared work on shared fields, the same way they did, you know, since the Middle Ages. Really, uh, even things like cattle in a New England town were branded not with an individual's brand, but with the brand of the town. Wow! And only secondarily designating the owner. Wow. So early on, yeah, there was a real sense that what America was supposed to be was very much like in the Middle Ages. It was just Protestant, um, which mm -hmm. obviously, the, so that was the seed of its own destruction. But it wasn't until later that younger people wanted to rebel against this, this order of, of commonality, commonwealth, and Christendom, and start heading out to the backwoods, that you see the settlement patterns of individual homesteads emerge. And this mm -hmm. was bitterly resisted by older generations. Oh, I bet. So you see, like, almost from the very beginning, America's falling away from what it was supposed to be. And we've forgotten that original purpose, that original errand in the wilderness, to be a model of, of classical Christendom. Yeah. Um, maybe you've read it, uh, Wendell Berry's essay of a title that I forget, describes some of the um, settlers in Kentucky. And um, it's, a, it's just, he's using an original source that's describing mm -hmm. um, the way that they would clear paths through the forest. And then when they went to sleep at night, they would cut down the old growth trees and make ginormous bonfires out of these old growth trees and then just sleep kind of around them. And Wendell says, you know, this is, this is awful. <laughs> this is a destructive relationship to, and a consumptive relationship to the country that does represent a, a new idea in, uh, in American history. Um, and then he kind of bemoans it playing out up until the point of the automobile. But, uh, by the way, yeah. there's a fascinating account from an Anglican uh, evangelist from the 18th century who goes up there to the upland South and is shocked by how unchurched the people are. Like people have just forgotten Christianity at this, this point. And yeah. these are Scotch Irish who in, in Northern Ireland were extremely devout. Yeah, right. But they weren't they weren't they were completely unchurched because they were on, you know, they were in isolated homesteads. You know, they had lost their common village life that they knew in the old world mm -hmm. in coming to America. So again, you see how these like right from the beginning, the mechanics of America are disrupting uh, the commonplaces of, of classical Christendom. So, you know, it's 
to, to recapture something that, you know, a deeper heritage, you really do have to go back a ways, but it's there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you go back far enough. So, Roger, you were, you have this 501c3. Yeah. You were on some land for a little while trying to make this happen. Right. Um, what happened? Can you tell us the story? Yeah, so I mean, it was uh, it was a great experience uh, and a total failure <laughs> because we we learned a lot and we made a lot of the same mistakes so many other you know people trying to do something similar have made. Um, among them, uh, I, I think not being I, I mentioned you know being really attentive to the functionality of a reconstituted social order, just not being attentive enough to that, uh, and mm. a big mistake that a lot of people or groups make is to focus too much on a common commitment, a common philosophical commitment, um, or, you know, even a spiritual life. And then the, the functionality sort of is an afterthought because they're so concerned mm-hmm. about getting together with people who think like them and not mm-hmm. like, well, how do we actually fit together in a way that we interrelate functionally? So, you know, we did the back to the land homesteading thing with our friends and learned very quickly how, you know, how difficult it is to sustain yourself economically doing that. Uh, we weren't r- really uh, thoughtful enough about, again, how we, uh, you know, as a group fit together. Um, and so it's been, it's been a great learning experience and something we, we got better about doing is visiting other communities that were successful to see what they did. Mm. Um, and, you know, among, among the lessons we learned is that the ones that were successful did not start with agriculture. Mm, interesting. Including, there's one group called the 12 Tribes of Israel that you can look up. They've been around since the early 70s. Uh, and what's interesting about them is that agrarianism is really core to their philosophy. Um, but they didn't farm for a long time, or at least not very much. Because what they were doing is they spent decades investing in other forms of enterprise that they could engage in as a community, whether that's um, soap making or carpentry, plumbing, uh, they run delis. Uh, and then it was only when those things were established and the, the core of the community had matured that they then pivoted to things that are much more difficult sure. uh, to undertake communally, like agriculture. Now, could you, I, I think I have some inkling of why this is the case. And actually, I see this in Steubenville now. I mean, a lot of the people involved in the sustainable agricultural work in Steubenville begin with a sort of transition from establishing work in town and then use what they can get from that work in town in order to make the transition to agriculture. But mm-hmm. why do you think that that order of things is necessary? One, uh, because if you're starting out as an intentional community, it's just very stressful. You know, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and mm. if you're if you're putting on top of that a lot of hard work that is not very lucrative, you're and, just adding stress. And that presumably is new to all the families and at the same time. The, yeah, because yeah, almost inevitably it's city people who sort of dream this stuff up. I mean, you can go back to Brook Farm totally. in the 19th century, right? Um, <laughs> city kids are always doing this. So, but yeah, if you start with, with something that's more lucrative, maybe a little more conventional, you can you can build your social order, the rudiments of it, and then pivot to agriculture and what impressed me in particular about this group is that they didn't pivot to homestead so what we're not talking about is having a lucrative career in the city and then buying a homestead yeah, yeah, on yeah. the countryside they work together um, in their community which is more communal they sort of follow the book of acts and that uh, and then the agricultural enterprise is also communal right which if you've ever run a small farm you know helps a lot uh, because there's just times like the harvest or planting where you just need a lot of hands on deck for a short period. Sure. Uh, and so what they're able to do is to accommodate that in a way that's much more efficient than most small farms because everybody in the community turns up, 
to help with the harvest. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I was told Skyler that it's it's interesting because my great aunt is English and she remembers in the 1940s in Yorkshire going out with the other villagers to help with the harvest. You know, they weren't farmers, but they were fellows in this Commonwealth who would participate in that together. So it's really interesting that they're kind of going back to something more like a a, a traditional social order just by thinking intelligently about how to do this. You know, they're not trying to be medieval, but they're just sort of getting medieval, so to speak, uh, in the doing. Well, I was going to say as a uh, pushback on this, you know, one of the critiques of Americans is that we're always dreaming up... uh, social orders. I mean, that's sort of our thing. <laughs> we love communes and cults. So to make it worse, both Roger and I are uh, Californians. We're part of the, oh, so then, the locusts that have, you know, yeah, yeah just eating, eating, the, eating the green of Ohio. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so you carpetbaggers. Um, <laughs> one of the critiques of course, is that look, an imitation of medieval principles is obviously a historical, and it is the sort of crowning glory of Americans to be extremely ahistorical, to say, mm-hmm. even of tradition and the church, I will imagine it as a business enterprise and I will enact it within a uh, tabula rasa, you know, mm-hmm. that's presented to me and I will build it up from the ground. And then, mm-hmm. um, which of course is precisely the opposite that you see in the development of Christendom, which is, you know, has such lovely words like organic and. You know, no one really knew what was going on. They were just following Christ and such. So, so what is it? Is it that this is just what we have to do? It's the way the world is. We got to think about it and do it inorganically and sort of awkwardly. Or is it that maybe we have a misunderstanding of Christendom and that um, things weren't quite as natural? Yeah, as we might expect. I, just getting kind of an answer. I, you mentioned to me last night this group in France that's actually really living. As Christendom, you have a duke. I mean, I mean, there's like, they, from my our American perspective, or from my American ears, and you, you uh, saw this critique coming, and it sounded like kind of LARPing in the Middle Ages, and you said it's not that at all. Could you explain yeah, that so first in in so answering Mark's question? Yeah, I mean, so I inter- uh, um, we have a number of models from these you know, places and communities mm-hmm. we visit, and one mm-hmm. of them is uh, it's actually in the UK. It's uh, Chatsworth Estate. In, in, yeah, sorry, the, uh, in yeah, England. Yeah. Uh, so the you know the manor house for Chatsworth the state you've almost certainly seen it if you're Catholic because it's used in Jane Austen adaptations for Pemberley. It's this massive private home, private because it's actually held in a trust uh, that's chaired by the Duke uh, Peregrine Cavendish. And what's fascinating about being in this place is that it's a huge estate. I mean, it's not like somebody's property. Like you drive 45 minutes to get from one side of it to the other. And uh, there are whole villages on this estate. There are tenant farmers that have been there multi-generationally. Uh, in the estate, you know, the, under the agency of the estate, there are businesses, there are forests that are managed, there's, there's farms, there's, you know, cottage industries. And uh, what was fascinating about it is that in this ecosystem, it was really like a parallel polis. You know, we use this term all the time to, uh, you know, something that sort of uh, exists alongside global capitalism and the state, as we're used to thinking of it. Because for these people, their duke was the head of their parallel polis. Mm. And uh, because he was a duke and not a capitalist on his private estate, he was uh, and is very conscientious of the good of that estate. And he's very attentive um, to, the, to the development, the needs of the people who live on it, and on also the ecosystem. Like he's <coughs> very sensitive to this. Uh, 
former Prince of Wales, now King Charles, and his estate, the Duchy of Cornwall, same thing, even though it's, it, it's actually even bigger. Um, it's, it's a whole ecosystem that's not based on what we're used to thinking of rich people with private property. Yeah, and then all, all of the endeavors within private property simply become forms of investment for the rich person. Right. I mean, this is what's, what's typical. Like, even when goods come out of that, it's to ex, ex, extract profits. So to get back to your question, I think yeah. we can start with an answer when we think about the household. So when we're thinking about the household and we shift our thinking from this is just a collection of individuals who are going to go off and find their fortunes yeah. to this is an entity that has its own internal life and yeah. culture that we'd like to perpetuate. You know, This household has a particular character that we have a particular loyalty to. And so the productive things that we do within the household are to support that and to ensure that it flourishes. Mm -hmm. And so, but the primary loyalty we have, even though we're all Catholics in the household, and obviously our number one loyalty is to Christ and, and to, to his church, uh, nonetheless, this other entity exists that's called the household of a particular character with a particular name and a particular identity through time. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to say is, and, that, and that's outside of the market, that's outside totally. of, you know, individual uh, contractual, you know, economic uh, arrangements uh, know. as my, we've conceived them. My kids just won't sign anything. No <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to say there is another level up from that. Yes. There is yeah. the level of the commonwealth and it takes the form of something like Roger just described. Yeah, and so it's not as if we're, we're coming up with a, a business plan out sure. of thin air for, uh, for this is what you should do, 10 steps to be yes. the best medieval Catholic. Medieval TM. Yes. yes. <laughs> huge it's, sales. it's a very yeah. natural thing for people to feel loyalty yes. to something that is not the church um, and not just themselves uh, individually or like a company or something like that. It yeah. is a temporal order. The household is a part of that. You have a loyalty to the particular character of a household. And then you have a loyalty one step up, which was the town, the village, the commonwealth that was under personal authority in many cases. Yeah, two, two things strike me. One is that common land seems to be the kind of sacrament of that step above the household. Yep. Sacrament in the sense of it, it both represents the higher good of multiple households and community, but it also en enacts it. It, it right. affects it because you, only by holding things in common is there a reality in which you are common together. Yeah. Um, so it's just always, it's just very apparent in modernity that it's a missing category. It's like yep. uh, we want to have Catholicism and its social order as a function of private property. That's right. And it seems like anyone who's really thinking about this has to have some concept of a restoration of common land yeah. uh, in order to imagine a loyalty that moves beyond the family, and but people not want straight this. to the state. People want this. You, there was a, a kind of viral video of um, a guy who, who does a lot of um, like urban planning type commentary about yeah. third spaces that was sure. recently out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was talking about how we've lost our third spaces. And it was really going back to the you Can know, you early 20th that century. Concept real quick? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Sorry. So a third space is a space where people gather in, in a city, um, you know, that is not their own household, uh, that they can kind of mingle and have a common community life. So whether that's a pub, you know, kind of the traditional village pub where, you know, where you gather, or um, that's a, you know, any number of other spaces, um, you know, a, a gym that's, you know, in the middle of town or, you know, what have you, um, just a, a square or a park, you know, that's uh, in the middle yeah. of town. 
Um, this is something that, you know, if you look back, um, even to the mid 20th century, we still had these uh, in our cities. And so uh, people in a particular neighborhood would gather somewhere and this would be the third space. It's not work, it's not your home, it's a third space. Right. So um, people really long for that and people are lamenting the loss of the third space. Um, but the fact is the third space was really just kind of a, a patching over of that loss of the common and of the town hall and of the village church. Totally. So those are, those are really uh, third spaces that are, that are elevated to the full scope of what they, what they should be, which is you know the glue and the loyalty and the sense of identity that is uh, born out of the common life and the common work together. How do you get a commons in a regime of private property? It's a great question. And I mean, I think I, that's the question, right? And I think that you sort of, the, to bring it back to the dichotomy you posed earlier, it's like, well, on the one hand, you know, is it, could this just be organic? On the other, are we going to be like crazy Americans and once again, you know, come up with a crazy idea for a crazy commune or something? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it, it has to be some balance of the two. So obviously it doesn't need to be organic or it's just not going to function. That's why so many projects like this fail, tend to fail. Um, but at the same time, you do need to be intentional. Uh, and so the question is, well, your next question is, well, what's, how do you do that? Um, so I, I think, you know, the, the mechanisms that we're looking at, for example, our businesses where our business comes in, is how, well, how can you run a business in a way that it evolves towards being a sort of commons, right? So the, the idea of the, you know, a good English equivalent for the classical Greek polis is commonwealth. Mm -hmm. And you see right, baked right in that word a sense of common ownership of you know, the wealth of a, of a society. So, you know, that's one way is to, to think creatively about how a business can go from being the private domain of an individual to uh, the shared uh, work and wealth of the people who uh, produce within it. Mm. Uh, the other is, I think... Uh, Surely you're not talking about employee ownership. No. That'd be outrageous. <laughs> Come on. This is America. Um, <laughs> but the other, I think, is the shared ownership of physical space. You know, we're yeah. incarnate beings. And that common space as a three-dimensional totally. place is really important. But there are many legal forms that you could explore, too, that are within the purview of state protected and enforced private property. Yeah. You know, trust structures. I mean, as trust Roger was describing yeah. with uh, Chatsworth Estate, for example... Uh, holding a land, holding land and productive enterprises uh, in trust um, that yeah, or have maybe, have a certain amount of governance by a board or what have you, right. but still they're held for in written into the documents themselves, legal documents. They're held for a particular purpose of common work and ownership. Mm, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean there's there's examples of that all throughout our town. Um, it's just that they tend to be held in trusts for the intention, idiosyncratic, not bad, just, just individual intentions of the wealthy That's from right. 150 years ago. So this place can only ever be a museum. That place has to go to a charity or whatever. That's right. Mm -hmm. But the idea that, you know, this place has to be a Christian commonwealth is obviously mm -hmm. <laughs> you're capable of doing that in law, which yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. Well, one other point, when you brought up the Duke, mm. It seems you seem to be suggesting one step further, which is not simply that um, we can have sort of Christendom structures, um, but that they need protectors in the same way. And th this this strikes me as true from even a more like leftist angle. I've been reading a historian, E.P. Thompson, which is marvelous. And one of the things he just keeps pointing out is that 
because we live in America, there's this deco- is he there? He's right there. EP. Where's he oh. at? Customs in common. Nice. Yeah. Uh, one of the things he points out is that because there's a kind of Americanization of history in some ways, we have this way of taking like n- nobility and royalty and annexing them to to wealth, and then treating the poor, the working class as being in this opposition to this other group, which is simply upper class, wealthy, rich, mm-hmm. capitalist, mm-hmm. royalty, and it's all one. It's all like commoners against the king, which is in, incredibly ahistorical because what the actual history of, um, of England, at least, he's looking at, is that what you really had was the king trying to defend the rights of the poor against an increasingly capitalist nobility um, that were offending against the traditional mm-hmm. rights. So, for instance, he talks about when they had uh, the bread riots. Um, we think of them as as riots of the oppressed over and against authority because we're Americans and that fits within our sort of conception of, of what makes a good riot versus a bad riot. But what they were actually doing is demanding the attention of the king. They even have stories of how when capitalists would sell, through various mechanisms, would sell... Um, bread, grain above the traditional pricing, uh, that they would riot, they would take all the grain, they would sell it at the original, at the, at the traditional price. And then they'd give the miller whom they'd just taken all the grain from, they'd give him the money and say, (laughs) thank you. It's now sold at the right price. So they, the E.P. Thompson's point is that, um, the kind of revolution that initially, like people try to make this line of continuity between this kind of revolution against oppression and then and then later modern Marxist and just sort of general 60s revolution ideology, that what's missing is that in the initial state, you actually had a calling out to protectors and a sense that the conservatives were in fact the ones uh, rioting in the sense of they were trying to conserve That's right. a traditional Christendom right a way of life. That's right. And that the radicals, and um, in, in by any proper meaning of the term, were precisely the wealthy. That's right. In their trampling on on the f- fixity of of Christendom. That's right. And it seems like a totally different framework. Which, when you said, okay, so I'm looking at places in which they seem to be doing the thing, and they have people acting as, you know, in some cases, an actual duke, but mm. also <laughs> acting as. Uh, nobility. I think there's generally there's a, you know, there's like a reaction to that that comes from this American idea that well, if if it's not obviously democratic, then it then there must be some hidden structure of hierarchical oppression going on, and it seems to be like you're saying quite the opposite. Right. I will say as an aside, and you know, if you're interested in history, there's been a lot of good recent scholarship on how the American colonies sort of had an analogous experience, and mm. that they were. Basically, their conflict was with the Whig, you know, which is a capitalist-dominated parliament in the UK, and they were protecting their ancestral rights that were g- given them by the king. And so in the 1860s, a lot of, or 1860s, 1760s, a lot of our founding fathers were actually appealing to Jacobite arguments, you know, from royal <laughs> absolutists in the 17th century, appealing to the king. So basically, can you get these guys under control and protect our ancestral rights that your crown has uh, given us? Um, it was only when that failed that they pivoted to a more enlightenment-sounding yeah, arguments, yeah, yeah. actually. But, um, yeah. And that was when the imperial class, you know, the development of an imperial class in Britain was already well underway. Sure. And so, um, in contrast to previous eras in English history where the local lord was very much tied in intimately with his people, right. um, 
you know, that was somewhat replicated actually in the new world in some ways, especially in, you know, say Tidewater, Virginia or what have you. And um, really during the period of settlement and from the early colonies to the point where we actually had the American War for Independence, um, a real, a true imperial class really developed that severed that direct link between gotcha. the people on the land and then the lords themselves who mm -hmm. all kind of centered at the imperial capital of London and started mm -hmm. participating in the empire building that really started occurring. Yeah. So and things like enclosure, you know, the agricultural revolution of the early modern period in, in England was you know, evidence of, of the aristocracy starting to become more capitalist. Right. Right. It, there was something disdainable about it. They're like, they're becoming grasping. They're becoming like lower almost. Uh, and so that fatherly authority, I mean, right. I think you can analogize, um, you know, those who are in authority in a commonwealth to the role of the father in a household. Mm -hmm. And so that fatherly authority really was severed. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, you could really see that as a father really abandoning his, his household. Well, you began this whole discussion with uh, absenteeism as, mm -hmm. and it seems like absenteeism is fact, in fact, this the increasing story of, of modern decline generally. I mean, you have the attempt to lead without knowing what you lead, the attempt to rule without care, right. essentially the, the attempt to have a kind of mechanical structural power over things, but without love. That's right. And it just seems impossible. And we're getting what we, what we asked for, I guess, in that regard. Yes, and sir. so of course the restoration, if uh, absenteeism is the problem is to, uh, to become fathers, right? That's right. Yeah. Crumbling industrial towns and crumbling castles. I mean, there's a, a good analogy you make there. Well, you take the castle, we'll take the town. <laughs> <laughs> and I think just to think about how do we, or what could be potential paths of intentionally starting to build these things again out of what has been organically given to us as Americans, what we have developed, um, really seem to be that we should look at the pattern of our society right now. So just to jump over to, to the Duke or to the uh, would-be King of France uh, mm -hmm. that people are praising, s finding their paternity in, right? Uh, that's natural to them. Mm -hmm. They actually have it in their bones. Mm -hmm. They're not LARPing. Like that is like something that's in their memory that's been handed down and it kind of fits them and it really does not fit us. Right. For America, I don't know, if I'm just tossing this out to see what you guys think about this. For America, the... It is kind of that mm. uh, that business owner, you know, that that is has been the only person that's really played some sort of paternal role for us um, we, within our Republican model, you know, where there is kind of this uh, insane egalitarianism that uh, neither makes sense nor is can it ever really be enacted. Um, yeah. But we see within. Uh, Within the creation of a commonwealth, as you mentioned, it really does have to be something that is uh, a common work amongst people mm -hmm. that that they are cultivating. Uh, I mean, just to kind of put it in really um, basic terms, Roger, you and I had you chatted about this at one point, where you just think about the number of hours that you work every week. I mean, at least 40, you know, and that's a ton of time. So the work aspect, the business aspect to developing the Commonwealth probably is going, I mean, has to be, it's essential. And it's also kind of fitting for where we've come from in America, creating, entrepreneurially creating something new, and then also seeing 
the the protector of the organization is is our leader. Like he's the only person that can really come up with this a good example. Can you think of one? No, more? I think you're quite right, Jacob. I, yeah. I don't think it's an ideal scenario, but it is our scenario. And so, yeah, right. so we love it. Yeah, and I think well, just you, like you know, having warlords all across Europe sure, not ideal. was not ideal, <laughs> but they still created some sort of like good feudalism. Well, this out is of what it, Christianity right? does, and this yeah. is why I never worry a lot about um, the question of LARPing because Christianity is never the kind of enacting of a blueprint that exists prior to the actual love and virtue of particular people. Like it's always freely and creatively enacted at every instant and every instant of love. Um, and so whatever it will be, will be new because that's what Christianity does is it makes all things new. Um, but specifically regarding America, yeah, we do have a kind of very odd rule by business type thing. Um, but I'm sure you've experienced this, right? Where like, um, you know, we have a, we have a business leader who is doing in, in Steubenville here, who, who has a very large family is a yeah, great farm. Mark you yesterday. already met him. That's yeah. great. Yeah. But it's really funny because people will, uh, you know, his, his family is so big and so active, you know, a, a brief anecdote. And I promise I'll get right back on it. When they were trying to introduce contraception into, um, Africa, one of the biggest problems they had is, and I'm, I'm reading the, the papers on this. So sort of white liberals go to Africa, try to get everybody, you know, shot with uh, estrogen and such. And they say, well, one of the problems is that Africans, they value children because they're helpful on the farm, which is to say, they, well, they have a form of life in which children matter. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is a problem. So their recommendations were, well, we should increase urbanism and education by which they meant, let's create the kind of culture that we have so that like us, they will uh, not need children as much and thus have a kind of... Um, which just goes to show that the Catholic moral life and the Catholic economic and social life are are integrated. I mean, the the only way to get traditional people to start contracepting like Westerners was to destroy their means of subsistence. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what had to happen. And so modernization as charity and uh, sterilization go, went hand in hand in Africa. I mean, this is obvious. This business leader in our town um, had lots of children who are all very useful to him and who naturally have started to just call him dad to other people. So for instance, she'll be like, um, who owns this? They're like, oh, that's dad, even though that, and you know who that is, mm. but it's uh, this natural sort of paternal um, power that he has through business, which obviously has lots of problems because business has this self-interest element to it in America where you always are worried about your paternal leader like well maybe he could just turn because at the end of the day you could do it for the money but i think within that that structure of self-interest you have people who who don't live according to its ideology and who use their power for the sake of others that's right and often within crumbling industrial towns um you find that in fact the real power is in those business leaders it's not in the state mm -hmm. the government is twiddling its thumbs or it's completely corrupt Yep. And what you have is fathers of families that are that are doing enterprises that are in fact sources of stability, sources of festival. Like yep. what do we do when we want to do a festival? Well, we go to right now. Well, we go to business leaders and we ask them for money. We're, you That's know right. what I mean? That's right. So there's already a de facto leadership structure, just because you know who, who cares how you label it? Whoever has the power has the power. Yep. And it seems to us that Christianity is just about taking strongholds of power and turning them towards the weak. I mean, it says that, you know, uh, talking about the coming of John the Baptist, he says uh, he will 
turn fa- uh, the eyes of fathers to their children. And that seems to be what Christianity does every right. time, is it turns right. the eyes of fathers to their children. I think a beautiful example in the lives of the saints is St. Thomas More in this regard. Um, you know, prominent cit- citizen of the city of London mm-hmm. from a merchant family, you know, himself continued kind of as a businessman, as a lawyer, but also as a, a true father of the citizens of London. He, he truly had their best interests in mind. And you look at how he ran his household, devoted father, devoted husband, you know, continually hosting people in his, in his home, continually, um, you know, making sure that he's not engaging in just um, luxury, but rather true magnificence in terms of how he runs his household, mm. uh, but also uh, committed to be a primary keeper and protector of the temporal order and mm. commonwealth that mm. he's a part of. Mm-hmm. And so I think looking to him kind of as an example among others um, is is key as we kind of navigate, you know, how we could conceivably, you know, take up this mantle, um, uh, you know, as as business owners, et cetera. It's interesting yeah. to bring up uh, paternity in, in uh, reference to business because you know, as Americans, I think we could, Catholic Americans, we could recognize talking about the town fathers, yeah, the city yeah, fathers, yeah, yeah. city fathers, founding fathers, certainly we talk about our church fathers, but... Mm-hmm. I mean, who in their right mind talks about the fathers of their corporation that they work for? Sure, right. Uh, in fact, it is, I mean, you, this maybe goes to your point about abandonment. It's like there is no father. Mm-hmm. It's just a, this kind of exploitative structure after a while. Right. Um, and so maybe that, this, this notion of paternity that you're, you're noticing with some of the businesses here in Steubenville is, is something we could hang our hat on. I mean, even if it's not literal paternity, a sense of yeah. uh, being a, sort of a founding father of a productive venture. Yeah, and what's so wonderful is... is well, there's a lot of hope in it because you don't have to theoretically bring people to an understanding of their role. You can just kind of shame them for not being Christian in any given, any given instance. I mean, what's awesome about America is that at some point you can just tell people like, well, you should be nice. You should be good. You should be Christian. Like, what would Jesus want you to do with that? And this is effective because we're faithful to some extent. Um, but of course, the result of following Christ is some of the things that we're talking about, um, that to, to turn, turn your eyes to your children, that is the result. So I, I have, I have hope that we have to, uh, you know, it's a give and take because every time you get a, every time you get someone that can protect a burgeoning Christian movement, you have to constantly evangelize that person within America so that they don't use the structure available to them to exploit it. And these these methods of exploitation were available to previous right, of course, previous rulers as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe it, maybe it was actually sending your you know sending your knights in armor uh, to oppress the villagers. Honestly, sure, sure, I mean, yeah. there are many modes and methods of oppression. So we don't want to say that you know our time, although it is uniquely bad in many ways, yeah. that people didn't have this challenge to be virtuous as as kind of the the fathers of their people in the past either. Well, and this, this is the return of, I mean, Jacob and I talk about this all the time. Like, how do you know when Christianity's back? Well, you know it's back when virtue and vice matter again. <laughs> because the whole destruction of Christianity was the attempt to create systems and worlds in which we could be anything we wanted to be and we could do anything we wanted to do. But because right. we were all within the constraints of market and state systems that our actions wouldn't have bad effects on each other. So you know Christianity's back when it really matters whether your father is there or not. It really matters whether people are corrupt or not. It matters whether they're virtuous. Um, 
But yeah. I, I think it's important to emphasize that, <clears throat> you know, the you know, renewal of heart and mind isn't actually quite enough. Um, and I've had intel you know, in arguments with intelligent people that I respect who make the, the arguments along the lines of, well, you know, you could be a, a Walmart executive or employee mm, or, yeah. or just sitting in a Walmart parking lot and look up at that Walmart and say, you know, if people's hearts are in the right place, basically, if they're truly converted, then this too can be redeemed. Mm. Um, and my objection to that is uh, that I think structures do matter. Um, oh, I think this is actually the point that Mark's yeah. making, actually, yeah. is that right now, virtues and vices do not matter because the structures are, the, are exclusively the ones that do. The, the, the systems that are in place are, ex are, are the only thing that keep the, the, um, all the operations right, like, in going. Um, if somebody is vicious, then it's just going to continue on. If they're, if they're virtuous, then things are going to fundamentally change, but, uh, but the system doesn't break down based upon your right. virtuous actions. I think mean, that's, that's yeah, the point. I'm not maybe yeah. underscoring rather than disagreeing. Sure, sure, sure. The fact that but I think you're, I think you're right. And, and I, I think this is so important. I think, you know, so many Christians are going to work in, today and saying, uh, you know, I'm just going, I'm going to, you know, pray my rosary as I'm going into town. Uh, I'm going to do my job to the best of my abilities because in that way I'm glorifying God. And, and in that way, I'm going to bring Christianity to the workplace. Yeah. It's like, that is, that is the biggest lie that you've ever told yourself. That is fundamentally false. If That's you're right. actually going to live as a Christian, it means that you're going to do something that is radically, by its roots, different from what you're doing right now. That, that, is, that is really the key. Yeah, so if we're going to actually create... If we're actually going to start being virtuous again, that means we're going to create new systems. Well, and yeah. totally going to create new systems. Yeah, I mean, you can yeah. see this. I mean, when you start, you know, like I was working at a fast food restaurant, and which one? Um, it starts with a C and it ends with fillet. <laughs> and uh, you know, one of their policies um, was that you couldn't give any food away. Um, and so, what they would do at the end of a week with packaged stuff, salads and stuff, just throw them all away, which was very painful to me. Um, it was painful to me because in some respect, I was growing in some very minuscule, un, unboastable form of virtue, which is that we shouldn't throw food away. We should give it to people who <laughs> are hungry, right? It was a basic one. But you see, right, right then and there, what, that tiny increase in virtue ran me up against a system of policy that would have to change. There have to be a structural change in order for what virtue dictates to realize itself in a real fruit. That's right. And if you're ever being serious about the Christian life, you're always going to encounter those um, yeah. and, and either change the system or, or do something new. This is why the, it's fundamentally in, incompatible with the administrative state and bureaucracy and corporations as they currently exist. Because <laughs> it's really, you, you really can't have that level of personal relationship and authority with someone where you can either behave virtuously or with yeah. vice towards them if you have all of these structures in the way of that personal authority uh, between, you know, someone who's taken up that mantle of authority and those who, who are under uh, under that personal authority and protection. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways, that's just the definition of bureaucracy, because it doesn't just mean like complex organization or, you know, right. having many people involved, right. which is somehow how it sometimes gets spoken of. It's not true. It is the active suppression of the meaning and mattering of personal authority, personal virtue, and personal vice. That's right. Um, it's the mechanization of, of um, 
authority. That's right. Yeah. And I think this line of argumentation has to be addressed more um, to people who are at the, the tops of these systems sure. than the lowly Chick-fil-A worker is. Oh, yeah, I couldn't do much. <laughs> might have. It really has to be, I mean, we would be, I think, addressing this line of argumentation, for example, to very faithful and good Catholic men uh, in positions of power, authority, and of means who are nevertheless... Um, you know, it functionally, the system that they're creating or sustaining is incompatible with a deeper understanding of Christendom. You know, at, d- d- despite their you know personal spiritual yeah. health or conviction. I know it's so it's so difficult. You know, it used. I'm not saying it used to be in like the good old days since, but it seems to be the case that any point of amassment or accumulation tends towards its own distribution because there seems to be a point of time in which a business becomes so big, a, a land becomes so large, a stronghold becomes so great that one person or even a family can no longer manage it rationally with care and love because mm-hmm. you simply can't know all of its operations. Now, for most time, and you think about the story of like Abraham and Lot, like when they arrived at the situation where the their herds were too great, what did what did Abram do? Well, he went to Lot and he gave him a gift. He said, "Pick whatever land is before you." Uh, there was, you know what I mean, like the mm. accumulation led to a point of distribution, and that seems natural. Um, but what we have now is the idea that through technological means and arrangements of people, that we can surpass that point of accumulation. And we no longer have to say, "Okay, this is so big, it should really belong to." a commons. Hey, this is so complex that really we should give ownership away to a leader as a, you know, to create something new as opposed to try and manage this through hiring consulting firms. You know what I mean? It's like the idea of unrestricted growth is such a sacred cow of, of modernity that um, I really do think that the difficult uh, position of the Christian in preaching to a CEO, uh, someone with with um, business authority, is of course saying that the point of growth, where personal authority becomes unthinkable or impossible, is actually the point of gift. Mm-hmm. It's it's like God's natural way of telling you to start giving something, mm-hmm. uh, not to start finding out how you can technologically manage it into greater heights. That's right. And I just think that is such a I don't know what your experience has been, but this has been a difficult one to uh, convince people of for me. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think people are just, uh, we, we kind of take for granted that these systems have always, always been in place because sure. uh, it's so part and parcel with how we how we live today. And it's very hard to see your way out of it. Yeah. Um, but people forget that, that we used to be a nation of um, extreme ownership. Yeah, you know, we we had uh, the ownership and therefore the accountability of our own productive enterprises or family enterprises, and that was what characterized us as a people. And um, since uh, corporate personhood and you know just the rise of the multinational corporation, the rise of the federal bureaucracy protecting and aiding and abetting the rise of that multinational corporation, we've really gone from a, a, a country of radical ownership of enterprises where to a greater or lesser degree, people were virtuous or vicious in how they treated their their people. Uh, we've now gone to one where uh, that personal authority and accountability is really severed. And you see that with a lot of the corporate scandals out there mm-hmm. where there's board of directors, there's management, there's shareholders, they all have their own particular interests and they're somewhat insulated from the consequences of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes 
you know, bailed out by the federal government and enabled by them. Yes. So this is not the system that we have to have. And you don't have to go that far back in our history to see that this is this is not no, uh, what you have to do to succeed. It's hopeful. It's hopeful that you find it in the sources of early America. I mean, that's... Am I allowed to say the S word on this podcast? Because <laughs> I think it. We're, we're, getting, we're getting there to, to the point where we have to start talking about the Shire. Oh. oh. The, the H word, which is the Hobbit. Oh. Um, Please do. Go ahead. Uh, bec- well, because this is something we, I, I think we've encountered, all oh, yeah. of us, all the time, is that once you start talking in these terms, you know, you're talking about structures that are just inimical to the Christian social vision by their very nature, and the need to back away from those and create alternatives... That that backing away is read as retreat to Hobbiton, mm, and mm. then people start thinking about those hobbits, those vulgar backwards hobbits, and um, they. I, I think this is something people on Twitter say, not like in real life. Not though. real people, okay. just fake people <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah. Twitter bots. <laughs> yes, maybe? yes, but this is a this is a critique we've heard. Yeah. Um, I mean, sadly, a lot of people say it. Uh, yeah, not just know, on Twitter. Jump in a comment box. I don't, I don't know that they've the read article. the book, to be honest. But go ahead, tell, tell me more. <laughs> probably have not read the book, uh, and, and you know, probably have not read other books on on this subject. But the the objection, inevitably, again, yeah. comment box or or dinner conversation is, well, we can't retreat because they'll just come for us in our little hobbit holes, and there's no escape. Can I just say before you go on to give a really good answer? Okay. Can I just say that the that that is there's an interesting admission there when people hear the vision and say, um, yeah, if we do this, they'll kill us. <laughs> it's like, okay, so, so let's just be clear. What we're saying is that we live in a society where if we do something else, we get slaughtered by a state. Like that's basically their, their option, okay? And your idea is that we should plow forward and become more a part of this of this thing that will kill us if we do otherwise. Okay, all right, now keep don't going. Take, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't take the ring. Don't take the ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but go ahead. But well, tell no, me I, more. I, don't, I don't know that uh, you know, there's necessarily a point over and above what we've already said here. I think uh, the only thing I'd add is that this framing of what we're talking about is yeah. just not necessary. You don't need to think of it as a retreat. Um, it's rather yeah. an advance to something better. It's it's a creative opportunity. Again, if totally. people were to use their all the money they put into retirement accounts yeah. and a lot more than, you know, roughly $20,000 can be plowed into retirement accounts, yeah, by yeah, the way, yeah. if you're a business owner yeah. through defined benefit plans or what have you. If you if you started putting some of that to work in building productive enterprises that had the level of accountability and intimacy with your people yep. that I'm talking about, you could be very successful from an economic standpoint in terms of creating wealth for your community. Absolutely. You just have to think in terms of how are you going to take on that mantle of fatherhood and radical accountability and ownership. Yeah. So there's no retreat there. That's actually a very bold thing for you to do. Right. It's the real use of power. I mean, what draws me again and again to this is... Um, you know, when I consider the alternatives, um, it's only when you become really enamored with uh, sort of titular power as opposed to real power that That's you right. start mm-hmm. to say things like, well, any any um, taking up of work and taking on of the responsibilities of a lord is itself sort of a retreat from an otherwise sort of occupy a unchanged state corporate tyrant tyranny structure That's right. because when I look at the whole state corporate world what I actually see is uh, failure to um, do anything in particular I mean people talk about the idea of having 
Catholics sort of take over DC as if that hasn't already happened. I mean, talk to anyone in DC and like, you can't, you can't walk three steps without bumping into some bright eyed Catholic intern who's, who's, you know, wearing a bow tie. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you know, they're, they're already there. <laughs> They've been there for a while. It's, it's just common knowledge that, that we got the presidency. Yeah. <laughs> we got it all, baby. <laughs> so what do we do? And, you know, you can make a few wins and you can modify a few things here and there through a lot of effort. And that's not to deny that there's a real possibility of like the, the need for remedial action within large structures. Sure. Absolutely. But the idea that that somehow is inimical to taking power and having alternative social orders and structures that have a sustainability where a good life and a happy life can be achieved by people, um, it, it just seems a little bit psychotic. No, it is. I mean, most of what one of these people say, like, don't retreat, they actually want to retain their passive lifestyles, mm. just going on in the yeah. machine in the way that it is. But even like the wins that would take, take, you know, for example, I mean, most of these people are living in suburbia, uh, not really doing anything impressive, you know, and most of us aren't doing like impressive things, actually. Um, but we just have to kind of be honest with ourselves, first and foremost, of where we are and and what we could be doing and in prayer discerning what is the right use of the power that we do have. Um, but but those who are actually in federal government and like doing these wins most uh, most of what we consider to be wins are not actually positive actions. It's actually just a really effective, like, throwing of sand into the machine and That's just right. slowing it down. It's not that there is, like, some sort of reformation of the political order that is now better from what they've done. It's just that they have uh, suppressed some of the techniques that are actively being used. Right. I mean, abortion is probably the best example of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, speaking of uh, S-words, you used another one, which is sustainability, right? So you're talking about, well, we need to be engaged in, th in building things that are sustainable. And I think a really important point for the, for the people who hate hobbits is that the current superstructure is, in fact, not sustainable. Sure. You know, maybe they would come to kill us in the future, but not in the distant future because they're not going to be around. Yeah, and they, they built is wicked, and they're and not having children. Not having children, uh, you know, this economic dislocation, environmental degradation. I mean, all these things will one day converge. The only way they reproduce, in fact, is by ensuring that the children of others. Uh, who are maybe more of like mind are continuing to participate in Absolutely. that machine. Absolutely, it's how mm -hmm. it's been since Tower of Babel, baby. Just got to get, got to get the kids. <laughs> but it, you know, it, it strikes me. The other thing is that most people will acknowledge, without much hesitation, that the corporate world and the corporate structure is as much this kind of large state power that that you know runs the world. I mean, it'd be, you'd be fools not to. And yeah, it's weird because there's no simultaneous sort of Catholic um, spur to to sort of uh, integrate from within the corporate structure. Like, why is that? Like, if that's where the power is and the whole thing that a Catholic is supposed to do is not retreat, then why isn't the call really that Catholics should go become the CEOs of all major corporations? Well, I think one of the reasons for that, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, it still exists in places, but one of the reasons for that is it's so obviously just a rehashing of a neoconservative ideal, which is namely that like... We have, um, you know, good morals, and we and we run capitalism by sort of modifying its excesses here and there, and it's just totally dissatisfying as a political ideal. It's like, no, 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 you need to radically change how we do business. That seems obvious. Yeah. And so I think there's an emphasis on the federal sort of state level work, even though the corporate world is the power, is the state. 
um, because it, it has a certain aesthetic of, well, we could possibly win this time with the mm -hmm. state when we know that what actually has happened to like any kind of Christian Catholic integration with um, corporate world is in fact just been betrayal of Christianity and Catholicism. Yeah, no matter what you're talking about, you're talking about a, a regime really that exists, yeah, right. you know, that exists from, um, you know, the marriage of a lot of what goes on in elite academia to the media to the federal government and bureaucracy to big corporations. Mm -hmm. And I think the recognition, because different circles have different emphases as far as, you know, where to really spend your time. And, you know, I've encountered a lot of people who really do talk about integrating from, you know, within the corporate structure more so and sure. turning the ship there. Um, but no matter what you're talking about, the structure is its own thing that kind of exists to support itself. And it involves all of those elements. So you really oh, can't yeah. separate them out. I know. I mean, like we had, we had, um, someone telling us that like the Catholic ideal is for a bishop to get on a board of, um, directors of a major corporation and kind of be the Catholic influence there. And it's like, dude, I can't think of any more impotent situation than a bishop on a board of directors. I mean, God bless him if that's like some necessary remedial action. Right. Yeah. But like, if that is the height of Catholic radicalism, then I want out, you know, I, I, I'll just, th then I do want the Hobbit retreat thing, but not because I think it's effective, but because I don't want to be associated with such uh, <laughs> untasteful kind of ways of looking at <laughs> the adventure of life, which is like, get on a board, buddy. Yeah. Isn't it no. great what the apostles brought us? I mean, <laughs> who, who doesn't dream of getting on, getting on the board of some big pharma company and slightly changing the oh, formulas? Oh, isn't it? Doesn't it just get you up in the morning yeah. and say, you know, Lord, I'm yours and everything <laughs> I have is yours? You know, and the other thing, I, I, you have to, you have to mention like the book and I, I don't, the B word, which is the book, which is Lord of the Rings. Ah. Because I'm not, if, yes. if you're going to call it, call this sort of move it, 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 disdainfully, if you're going to call it hobbits, that's fine. I mean, everyone is entitled to their own slurs, right? That's my gift to them. But if you're going to use it, you have to like know what hobbits were, right? Because it seems what they're really doing is making an association between hobbits and libertarians, which is to totally uh, like libertarians in the sense of, of like the individualist sort of retreatist, individualist, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, like bunker, bunker uh, sort of living. Uh, and then like, associating it with the hobbits and then but it's just like obviously not the case one of the things that i like to point out about the lord of the rings is that the hobbits were actually the ones that won i mean i think it's this true. is important <laughs> that the whole thing was the question was well, how how to destroy this wicked thing in the world that's right and, and furthermore and was, you have to reject it in order to destroy it right there had to be someone that rejected wickedness in yeah. its entirety yeah and that because of of that rejection which was rooted in the way they were living um, they were actually capable of doing it. So then the question becomes, like, if you're going to call us hobbits, what you're talking about is the people who succeeded in the goal, as opposed to, I guess, what, Gondor? Like, all the people that failed when, when the ring tempted them? It just doesn't seem like a good argument. What you, what you want to say <laughs> is something like your failed hobbits. Right, like that—that yeah. that would make more sense. I mean, least. I think I think the the like the it may be that some people are also talking about the communal aspect. They're thinking of like hippie communes, things that failed uh, like oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. as well as fuzzy those feet. Yeah, yeah, fuzzy feet, you know, <laughs> cozy cozy pie making, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think the important thing to recognize is that the full scope of the characters in that book include people who actually wield real power too. Mm -hmm. um, and those people were good people. They used it virtuously. Mm -hmm. You know, think of Aragorn yeah, yeah. with how he cultivated the relationship with the hobbits. You think of Gandalf, you know. Um, uh, but 
And so that was also a key component of the success mm -hmm. of protecting something like the, the full flourishing mm -hmm. of life, you know, in that world. Right, so, but the question is, would Aragorn have meant anything if there wasn't the hobbits to protect? I mean, what I mean is, yeah. it goes back to that E.P. Thompson idea, like the idea of ancestral rights and then the idea of large institutions and, and complex bits of, that's right. of power only makes sense in the context of Christianity in which that fatherhood is turned to the children. That's right. And, and the idea of simply saying, well, well, there's a lot of problems with just assuming that th that structure, which is being described in Tolkien, is simply our big versus little structure in America, which doesn't seem to be the case at all. Right. And I think Tolkien was well aware that he was, what he was referring to was those, um, those earlier periods in medieval history, yeah, right. and particularly in England, where the lords did act like Aragorn did towards the Shire. Mm -hmm. And uh, his laboring over many years to protect the Shire was partly a reflection of his view of the importance of it as in its continued existence. Mm. And so the Shire in itself is essential, the hobbits are essential, and then the figures who actually act in the capacity of fathers and protectors of it are also essential. Mm -hmm. That's what Lo the Lord of the Rings tells us. And it tells us that those protectors have to reject uh, working within evil, inherently evil systems, i.e. taking the ring, yeah, right. uh, in order to achieve that. And, and when we think, of, because of the, I think the word that is kind of in the background with the hobbits in the slur is uh, impotence. Mm. I, I liked your example of the bishop on the board, of Jan Brands, right? Um, just that, integrating from within, my guess. If we're thinking of, of just complete impotence in the face of our enemies, think of that, and not the people who are yeah. in places like here in Steubenville who are rebuilding Christendom from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it is one of my guiding principles is simply, is the thing that you're doing hard? Is it exciting? And does it feel like something that when you die and you tell Christ you did, he will say, wow, tell me more. <laughs> and, and it just seems like that, that's, that's fair and that a lot, of the, a lot of the retreatism is in fact from that. A lot of the retreatism is a question of how can... How can we maintain our life as it is? How can we make sure not to radically alter any structures? How can we be short for short-term gains that we can see in our lifetime, maybe even in the next two years? Because the way that we make those gains is by inputting ourselves into technological systems where, you know, those kinds of gains are possible. And and I, I think that it is very boring. And so part of what is very exciting about some of the... Um, ideas that you guys are offering for the restoration of a Christian social order is that it is fun. I mean, that sounds really fun. Absolutely. That sounds really exciting. It's certainly radical. It's something to do with a life, it, yeah. you know, which is great. <laughs> All right, well, let's go buy a commons and um, we'll, we'll get back to it. <laughs> thanks for coming out, guys. We appreciate oh, thanks it. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great conversation. Always nice you. to agree with someone around a table. Even a Californian or two? I mean, is that... <laughs> well, we can convert from that in a <laughs> Well on our way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. All right, we'll see you next time, everyone. Thanks so much. And then the music plays.